0: I haven't always had control over the experiences that I've had in
1: my life, but I have control over how I tell the story of them. I was thinking this is the greatest thing ever, and it is.
2: My writing process is the same. I'm just a girl who likes to write.
1: Oh, sometimes when you talk about the stuff that sucks, people will pay you
2: money and you'll feel better about it, and then you can buy your Prozac. If you are waiting
0: for permission... To have a voice in this world and to tell your story in this world, then you're not going to get it. I'm Lux Alptrom
2: and I'm Lee Stein,
0: and this is the Bindercast, a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender nonconforming writers. This week, we're talking about the many people who shape our careers, from family to mentors to colleagues, friends, and, of course, other binders. Lee, what's your backstory?
2: I don't come from a family of writers or artists, but my mom is a clinical psychologist and I think I have empathy in my genes, which definitely helps me as a writer, but not in terms of any industry connections or anything like that. For those, I was on my own, which is why The Binders has been so important to me.
0: So I don't even have empathy on my side. (laughs) I'm the daughter of two scientists. My mom is a biochemist turned university president who's now retired, and my dad is a biophysicist who studies ion channels. I think it's pretty safe to say that neither one of us is descended from Hollywood royalty.
2: Yeah, that sounds accurate. But that's why I was so excited to talk to our guest this week, screenwriter Jenny Lumet, who wrote the script for Rachel Getting Married, starring Anne Hathaway. Unlike us, Jenny really does belong in Hollywood. She's the granddaughter of Lena Horne, the first black actress to get a contract with a major Hollywood studio, and the daughter of Sidney Lumet, the famous movie director of 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, and Serpico.
1: My mother is an academic, and she writes books about African-American military history, and she's badass, and my grandmother is my grandmother, and actually... My son, Jacob, who is on Broadway, is the fifth generation of people in my family, starting with the tent shows in the Deep South in the early 1900s, to be in showbiz. We haven't had a steady job in five generations.
2: That's amazing. It's amazing.
1: It's amazing. Great-grandma, great-great-grandma tent shows. No, know, great-grandma tent shows. Grandma, Lena, Gail, books, me, movies. And on Sydney's side, before his father, they were all killed by Nazis, so we don't know. His father was Yiddish theater. Sydney was Yiddish theater and acting. And then there's me, Jake's father, who was an actor called Bobby Cannavale, and there's Jake. So it's on both sides. and it's, it's really cool. Even with
2: that impressive pedigree, Jenny still had to break into the movie business like so many people do,
1: by writing a great script. I started writing when I got pregnant with my First child who is now 20. So that would have made me 28. Yes. And I wrote three. Rachel was the fourth. And yeah, the first three were just really bad. I'd love to hear
2: about the first three. Like, do you, looking back, can you see why those weren't the ones to get made?
1: Well, they were bad.
2: (laughs) 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 But did, at the time, in your mind, was it like, I don't know why, like, these aren't working. Like, I think they're really good. Or were you like, no, that didn't work either?
1: I had no perception of what it meant and what it took to get a movie made or to make a movie. Oddly, you would think. So uh, I assume I always had an enormous ego. And I still do. And I think I'm the shit. And I was like, well, I'm the shit. So I don't get it. There was that. And then you kind of learn a little. <laughs>
2: Did the three screenplays you wrote before Rachel Getting Married teach you things you needed to learn in order to write Rachel Getting Married?
1: Yes, in a really annoying way. I love The Absurd. I love it. I love, like, it's funny. The The time between generations is very, very short now, but it didn't used to be. You know, my dad was in acting in the Yiddish theater when he was four, and he did that until World War II, and then he went to the Army, and then he got back from World War II and had sort of this life. And sort of the people that were around our dinner table growing up, it was like Adolph Green and Betty Comden and it was Gene Sachs and it was Hal Prince. So these are people with this theatrical kind of thing going on. And people who will get up and scream in the middle of dinner and and in terms of like, this is what I'm doing right now and Adolph Green would sing and say, this is what I'm working on. So my sensibility is sort of more slapsticky and more sort of go there big if you're going to go there. And in a sort of a Mel Brooks blazing saddles, balls to the wall, fucking batshit crazy kind of way. Now that and the first three screenplays, if I remember them, because I also could be remembering them much better than they were, <laughs> it had a sen- real absurdist sensibility And I think they were just so off the wall that no human but me thought they were really fucking funny. I was like, this is the funniest thing ever. I didn't get it. With Rachel, I wanted, well, it was, you know, that lesson right about stuff that you understand. And I wanted the complete sort of balls to the wall, emotional bravery of the stuff that I seen in comedy, you know, and, and it's a little hard to explain. I grew up with these people. And my mother's side and my father's side. I mean, these artists who did not care and would just go. And there wasn't angst because it was a different generation. It was all about, this is, you know, some of them are depression era. some There was all World War II era. So there's no angsty, ah, I'm not worthy. Ah. It's, um this is what we do.
2: I hear people who live outside New York think that there's this conspiracy about book publishing, that you have to live in New York in order to get your book published. And I'm sure a similar thing happens with Hollywood, that people assume, oh, if you don't have the connections, you can't do anything. But I love reading this quote from you in the Wall Street Journal, and you said, I can definitely say that if you want to be in the film industry, it's really good to be related to someone famous. I would advise that. The closer the relationship, the better. It's probably best to be someone's identical twin. All true. Absolutely
1: true. It helps movie people, but also writer people and musical theater people and poets really like being in the company of other movie people and musical theater people and poets. Da da da. Movie people speak a language, and it's good to know it. And sometimes you just sort of you can just kind of walk in, but there are a lot of people storming the gates. And being related to famous people has definitely made my career happen. I don't know if I would have had a career without it. There's no way to know because I am who I am. But no, not everybody can, even though it took me a year, two years, whatever it took me, can get their script to Jonathan Demi. But I did because I'm related to famous people and it's awesome. In addition to being famous, Jenny's family is also
2: multiracial. Jewish on her father's side, and black on her mother's. Multiculti, as Jenny would say. And that aspect of her life shows up on screen in Rachel getting married, whether Jenny intended it or not.
1: You know, what was amazing is that I had absolutely no intention of that at all. And um, Jonathan cast the wonderful Tunde Arabimpe, whom we adore, who is TV on the radio. Um, and I think he's now living in L.A., much to the dismay of every hipster in Brooklyn. They're all weeping. And Jonathan cast him because he's Tunde. And it became what it became. And when we were in Venice with that movie at the festival, which was really fun. They fly you around. It's awesome. Movies are awesome. The European press kept asking, oh, you know, it's my accent. I'm sorry. Oh, you know, this is a representation of Obama's America. And after a while, I was like, yeah, because I'm that smart. And I I had absolutely, that was Jonathan casting. But it's, I mean, that's what the world looks like. And some people, it was really funny. Some people were like, how come they didn't mention it? How come they didn't mention what? Like, why wasn't, why wasn't it discussed within the characters in the movie? Why wasn't the racialness discussed? And I was like, well, you know, first of all, I had to like make up that I had made it up. When I didn't make it up, Jonathan cast it, so I had to like come up with some smart-sounding shit really fast. But what I did know was that if you're marrying a black guy and you're white, you've probably noticed he's black before the day that you were getting married. And like all your friends would probably notice, too. So you probably had the discussion already, was my assumption.
2: You are the first woman of color to receive awards from the New York Film Critics Circle, the Toronto Film Critics Association, and Washington, D.C. Film Critics Association, and you started this diversity caucus for Writers Guild America East. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your identity as a woman of color and what you feel like you can do in the industry or how you're motivated to make
1: change in that way? Yeah, I guess there are a lot of people who say that awards mean nothing. I think they're cool. I was like, yeah, I am the only woman of color to receive these three things. And that's pretty badass, especially because historically, I'm not supposed to be here. Even with all the stuff, and even being a a movie person, I'm still not supposed to be here. So it's thrilling that award stuff. It's great. You know, as I get older, I get angrier at this stuff, especially lately. That's a whole nother podcast. That's like somebody else's conversation. By virtue of doing what I do and what I'm doing now, I can't leave. I can't stop. And not. And it's a privilege to do it. Because if you think about the heartbreak of people, the heartbreak of people of my grandmother's generation and the heartbreak of people of my mother's generation and the heartbreak of people of my generation and yours. But it sounds like bad writing to say, but it's true. That I cannot let the people who came before me down. I just can't. And the people who don't have what I have, I can't let them down either. And I don't, it's, I'm not noble. I'm just a person. But there's some kind of energy boomerang. And I can't drop it. I won't drop it. I think it's the ultimate disrespect for people who don't, who don't have what I have. And had to do it harder, and it was meaner. Still pretty mean, but it was harder and meaner and more ruthless before. And um, can't say I'm tired. They were tired her And as the
2: descendant of the first black actress to get a contract with a major Hollywood studio, Jenny has seen up close exactly how tired those who came before her were.
1: So at my grandmother's funeral, Jesse Norman Right, it's Jesse Norman. And she walks around, and you're like, you're just walking around like a human? Really? And it's not. It's different. She walks, and everything changes. And she walks down the street, and the street becomes... She's Jesse Norman. And her art is of the magnitude that we don't understand. And she said... And I had to call her up, and I talked to her answering machine, and I was terrified. And I should have recorded it or something. But um, she said, when I think of what your grandmother had to endure merely to do beside what she wanted to do or just to do her job to be permitted to do her job and and she said I weep did she get to see Rachel getting married she saw it on DVD and she was like you people talk so fast and I was like grandma I talk fast so she watched it a couple of times and she was really proud I didn't ask her if she liked it because it's also it's not a movie you either like or you don't like. It's a movie that you connect to, I think, or you don't.
2: Talking to Jenny, it was clear how many advantages she had getting started because of her family background. But I also loved hearing her talk about all the work she's doing to pave the way for the next generation of writers.
0: Which includes us, actually. Lee and I met Jenny last summer when we were launching our conference for women and gender nonconforming writers, which, if you don't know, is called BinderCon. Uh, it was funny because Jenny actually raised hell because she thought we were trying to exclude screenwriters, which we absolutely were not. Uh, and... Thankfully, we were able to turn that misunderstanding into a great partnership because we approached Jenny for help, and she's actually on our board of directors now.
2: I love Jenny, and I love meeting her at the diner and drinking Diet Coke with her. And I learned so much from her stories about breaking down doors to get where she wants to go, including the completely insane story of how she got Jonathan Demme to direct Rachel Getting Married.
0: Well, I learn a lot from her fashion choices, Uh, but we'll get back to that one later.
1: What I learned, also you kind of learn this when you have kids, is don't f- fucking wait for permission for anything. Just do it and then apologize wildly after if, like you have to. Like I ate Sasha's candy. Sasha's my daughter. She's seven. And I ate all her candy corn last night at like three o'clock in the morning. And she woke up. She was so furious. But it's like I wasn't going to wake her and ask her, can I eat? Your can-? I was like, I'm a terrible mother. I'm terribly sorry. Sometimes you just need it. You know what I'm saying? How did you get Jonathan Demme to make this movie for you? Well, I did not get him. He made up his own mind. He is Jonathan Demme. And what I can tell you is this. And I think this is probably, and amongst the binders, is probably the only place where I can say this stuff. Not the story, because the story is, my that humiliation is documented. But I remember watching him on television winning the Academy Award for Silence of the Lambs and thinking, him. Like, boom. And this is years before anything, but I don't know. And um, I told him that once. He said, you're out of your mind. I was like, I felt a psychic connection to you through my TV. And he was like, just shush and have another Diet Coke. So it was him, 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 and only him. And maybe I just had a crush. I don't know. He's really handsome. But it was only him. And it was only him for me because of how much he loved his actors. Because I knew if the director did not love the actors, the audience wouldn't either. And you have to love these people or you're just going to smack them okay so wanted to get the script jonathan demi and after two years because he's slow to make up his mind about anything which is great he says okay i read it i don't want to make it but would you like to work with me on it and the first time he called me he said hi this is jonathan demi i was like and then i got stammered and then i hung up and then he called me back and he said it's jonathan demi really and um do you want to come work and i said of course i kind of want to come work And he lives a train ride on Metro North away from me, so I went up to his house. And here's what I knew. I knew I'd done my homework, and I'd essentially cyber-stalked him like a boyfriend. (laughs) Totally cyber-stalked him, and this is what I knew. I knew that he wanted to be a veterinarian, but he couldn't do the math, so I knew he loved animals. And I knew that he had a poodle. Um, and I knew that from a friend of mine who lived in the same neighborhood as him. So I put this stuff down. And I knew all this stuff. And I go up. And his house is up some stairs. And there's a black poodle on the stairs. He's waving to me from his porch. And I'm, like, pretending like it's something normal that happens. Jonathan Demi waves to you from a porch every day. So I'm like, hi. And then Olive, the poodle, comes bounding down the stairs because she's a dog. And she comes and she starts sniffing me all over. Sniff, sniff. sniff. This is me being a dog. Like that. And Jonathan goes, she really doesn't take to people like that. And I had Bacos in the pockets of my jeans. Because fuck you, I'm getting this movie made. So Ollie wouldn't leave me alone for the first meeting. And she was, yeah, because was, I was covered in bacon. You, I think you have to have a streak of sociopathy. And if you don't, you better fucking get one. Because no one's going to give you nothing without Bacon! So <laughs> um, after that meeting, my mother, who's very polite and horrified by my language, um, taught me to write thank you notes, which I never do. I still haven't done them for my first wedding, which was like 100 years ago. So I wrote a thank you note, but I didn't write it to Jonathan. I wrote it to Olive. And I wrote her, because I was a drama teacher, I wrote her a sonnet. And I wrote her a haiku. And I mailed them care of Olive Demi to the address. And uh, a couple of weeks later, Jonathan called me. I said, "Oh no no, we're going to see each other again." I said, "I don't you know, Jonathan. It was so rewarding. Just did Olive get her mail?" And he said, "Yes." and her sonnet he said, "I put the sonnet on the fridge, and the haiku is like by the butter dish or something. And when he said that, I was like, "Yes, because that meant that every single day of his life he had to deal with me, And he saw like it was essentially, you know. Like a flare.
2: You and infiltrated his kitchen. I
1: infiltrated his fucking kitchen. Absolutely. And i do it again. After that, with his interest, and he spoke to two actresses, and was the second. And it just things just snowballed from there. We worked on it for like probably six months. It's pretty much the same script. It's tightly scripted. There's almost no improvisation in that movie. Very tightly scripted. Yeah. And I think he cut out. I had more dog stuff because I'm a dog person. He's like, it's got to go. Got to go. Being a
2: dog person might have helped her connect with Jonathan Demme, but obviously there are other aspects of her identity that she is always conscious of, whether in a Hollywood meeting or in an online community of other writers.
1: There are so many fronts. There's the age front, which is why I'm the mod for Finders Over 40. And there's the female front in general because statistically movies and I don't know much about publishing I assume that it's also egregious Hollywood is worse is worse Yeah that doesn't surprise me I'm silenced which is not often because I feel the enormity there's a lot of language there's a lot of radical language I don't speak which I've learned actually through binders I've learned how much I don't speak I learned what code switching is. I had no idea what that was. There's a whole vocabulary of thinking that exists among young people, but we're talking about young women, so young women. And I didn't know any of it. And I'm thrilled that there's a vocabulary for it now. And I suppose that has always been my life in a very strange way. In a kind of a rarefied way, I've just never known it. Um, in terms of growing up in the world of whiteness, even though I come from a line also of black people who changed the planet. Except I also you know, spent every summer in East Hampton, Long Island, with the only pair of Afro Afropuffs at the East Hampton Tennis Club. Very fucking weird. And I'm still mad at my mother for that. I'm like, Gail, what were you thinking? Straight up. So the threads of my awareness are probably pretty unique to me. However, they have given me an ideally suited position. They made it easier for me to infiltrate. That I don't speak the language and I'm learning it. The language of revolution, which is the language that I'm learning, means that the fire is still fresh within me because I learn a new term all the time. Which is not to say that that I agree with whatever the line is about radicalism and revolution. That kind of stuff changes within me almost from day to day about how I feel about something. But what I do know is this. I'm a woman of color and I'm working. And I've been working since 2007 and I haven't stopped working since 2007 and they pay me. I'm always under a contract. And whether or not stuff gets produced, that's not the job. The job is to write the shit. And I write for white people and I write for Asian people and I write for Latin people. And interestingly, the only thing that I haven't written, and this Brings up a whole another podcast that you will have to have with someone much smarter than me. Lee is that I haven't written for people who are not moneyed in terms of character, and that's a class as a class is a huge issue. Thrilled to talk about it. Someone needs to school me, and it's been a wonderful awakening to my own privilege in terms of that. But damn, there's a lot of threads in my particular fabric. If someone made you the queen of Hollywood and you were a big boss lady and
2: you could change the representation of women screenwriters and directors, like how could we fix this if you had a
1: magic wand? There is a magic wand and it's called money. Uh, The economic model is very strange in Hollywood. They make very, very big, inexpensive movies, some of which I'm working on right this very minute as we speak. And so fewer movies get made. That model has to change. Um, And I don't know if it will. I'm not an economist. It would seem to me that, you know, five movies costing $300 million is not the wisest thing on the planet. And the, can that system sustain itself? I don't know. However, it's about hiring. It's not about mentoring. Mentoring is... um. I do it. I've done it. It's exhausting. I mean, I have kids. And mentoring is extraordinarily time-consuming. And it's difficult. But I received the mentorship that I received around the same time, and I'll say absolutely say Jonathan was a mentor, but I wrote Rachel Getting Married. I had a script that was finished, that I vetted and showed to people and had table reads with my friends. And I did everything that I could to make sure that if it got in front of people, because you get one shot, that it was ready. And it was, oh my God, my friends were, they were like, Jenny, we don't want to read this fucking thing again. So when these mentors came into my life, I had won the New York Films Critic Awards and Toronto Film Critics, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I was a certain, I was a proven entity in a certain respect. I mean, Jed Apatow apparently mentored Lena Dunham. Great. That happens. It's wonderful when it does. I don't know if anybody's going to give you a chance just because. There's tokenism, sure. Tokenism is not. It's always a bad thing spiritually and karmically, but it's not a bad thing in, tensi- in the sense of if you get, get your ass in the room, get in the room. If I can get in the room and just kick it and own it and tear it apart. And I don't know if, if that's a sort of a politically incorrect thing to say. I will not be hired as a token. I don't know. But if you can get in the room with anybody, for what, if you've guilted the shit out of them and you get in the room, I don't know, just care. Just like get in the room.
2: And sometimes that room isn't a physical room. It can be a metaphorical one, like Franklin Leonard's Blacklist.
1: Um, (laughs) Franklin Leonard has something called, he was an exec, and execs are notorious for, their job is to say no. And he didn't like that, and he likes art, and he likes movies. So he created something among the execs called The Blacklist, which was just movies, the best scripts that are not produced that you read this month. And just made a list. And that grew and grew and grew until you had blacklist scripts, until people were actively seeking out the blacklist and making those movies. That is now an online algorithm where you can post your script online, and he's figured some genius thing out that I don't understand, but it has to do with math, and I can't do math, and I know that's very unfeminist of me, but I can't fucking do math. Um, <laughs> you can post your script, and... Large agencies and large studios and smaller production houses subscribe to the Blacklist and they hopefully will read your script. One of the things that I've heard about Blacklist, which Franklin avidly discourages, is that a lot of women writers are posting just their first initial on their title page because they know that if they're, yeah, they know that if the script, this is by Susan or this is by Deshauna or this is by Imogen, that it's a different thing. And so, unfortunately, that might skew the algorithm in terms of how many women are posting their stuff, but they think we can only do certain things. And I don't believe that we can only do certain things, but it also has to do with the rest of the world. And the rest of the world buys this product that we as Americans make, and we make it, I think, better than anybody. I mean, say what you want. And we make musicals and we make superheroes and we do some serious shit too. And we make great, great movies. We're really, really good at it, but we have to sell them across the world. And what I've also learned is that woman's written, woman generated stuff has a smaller worldwide box office. So if I were to be the queen of the world and wave my wand, I would make everybody not an asshole and, like, not give a shit and realize, you know, that's what I would do. And, yeah, I would actually like to do that tomorrow. That would be awesome.
2: For some screenwriters, writing an award-winning indie would probably be enough to coast on for a while. But Jenny's committed to continuing to break down walls and go places women of color don't usually go, which, these days, means the writer's room for Universal's Monster Movies franchise.
1: In terms of what it is to be a screenwriter, there are a lot of ways to make money writing. You can doctor, and I've doctored. You can sell something original. You can adapt. There's a lot of ways to do it, if you can, if you're able to get in there. I'm having this really amazing experience, and I've been working consistently since 2007. So I'm having this amazing experience right now in that Universal Studios is launching a franchise And learning this language is almost as freaking weird as learning the language of revolution, which I've been learning from ladies like yourself, for real. They're launching a franchise, and they're launching it like a TV writer's room, in the sense that they've given it to six writers and saying, we have these properties that we own, and we've owned since a long time. And they're the universal monsters. It's the Frankenstein with Baltzan and Snack. It's Bride of Frankenstein. It's Dracula. It's Wolfman. It's Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's a whole bunch of stuff. Make it relevant. Do it again. Make it relevant. And so there's six writers in that room, and it's me and five guys. Um, and each of these movies is probably going to come in around a hundred million dollars. And like for them, that's like nothing. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, In terms of super specifics, I can't go into it. It's very close. They like to keep things close to the vest. That's fine. It's their money, and it's a crazy amount of money. But what's awesome is that they don't – previously, they don't let women write this stuff, and they certainly don't let women of writers – women of color write this stuff and fuck everybody because I'm writing this stuff. And a wonderful guy named Alex Kurtzman said, I want you to be part of this. And he took a chance just because. It's a whole new world that I wanted to learn and understand because the more things that you're able to do, if you are only able to write one type of thing, it will not serve you as well as being able to write many things. I mean, it's great to be, you know, if you are Charlie Kaufman, amazing, amazing. But I wanted, I'm not a white man. So I wanted to know how to do as many possible different things. And now I know how to write a big ass movie. And it's great. And so I can write another one. And that means I'll be a woman of color writing another one at 50. You know? So that kind of shit's important.
2: And finally, some essential fashion advice from Jenny. It's a great T-shirt. Can you just, people,
1: um, tell whoever might be listening what your T-shirt says?
2: Oh, I'm wearing a T-shirt that was a gift from Jenny. It says, don't fuck with me, best regards.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. (laughs)
2: People were very polite to me as I was wearing it. I feel very self-conscious, but I have to say everyone's been very polite to me today. Because
1: it says best regards.
0: (laughs) In addition to being an amazing award-winning screenwriter, Jenny Lamette is also a member of the Out of the Binders board of directors. She's not on Twitter, but she's still really awesome. The BinderCast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to BinderCon.com or follow us at BinderCon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by Lux Altram and Lee Stein and produced by Jennifer Lai. Our theme music is ready to go by Miss Eves and Quiche. Many thanks to Seth Lind. In an upcoming episode, we'll be talking about collaboration. And in the spirit of teamwork, we'd love your help to finish this episode. Record a voice memo on your smartphone about the times that you have collaborated as a writer, whether that means working with an illustrator, working with an editor, or actually sitting down in a group and working as a team to write a project. You can send your recording to info@bindercon.com. That's I-N-F-O at bindercon.com. We're looking forward to hearing all your tips.